Being out there in beautiful Buskerfield, Buncombe County. <laughs> What's going on, man? How you doing? <laughs> ah, doing all right. Not too bad. How are you? Top of the morning. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a um, few things we got to go through. It's, you know, it's been a week. Yeah. It's kind of a crazy week. By the way, did you see the op-ed on WRAL this morning? I believe, basically, yeah, I believe yeah. I retweeted it out saying something to the effect of uh, time to circle the wagons, everybody. People are starting to doubt Cooper's crisis management abilities, so we've got to protect the precious. And you can rely on the former uh, Democratic governor <laughs> comms guy that now writes for the voice of WRAL's parent company to uh, to make that case. Essentially, uh, North Carolina is in the 40, uh, four, it was 48, yeah. um, which was a number we used to celebrate when we ranked there for other <laughs> reasons, but um, it was 48, and now I think they're, they're claiming to be 41st. What I found very interesting is the first ranking that they used in it was actually a ranking that showed North Carolina as ninth in distribution of uh, vaccines uh, mm-hmm. and the ability to follow through with that, but that was on that was purely on population, and uh, we have a lot of people, so you know it's easy, it's easier to end up there when you have more allocated. What's troubling though, and I don't know some of the all the numbers you've seen, is the the potential for waste of wasted vaccine vaccines that um, uh, were spoiled or uh, ultimately were not making their way out there in a timely enough manner. What are you hearing on that front? So Mandy Cohen, the Health and Human Services Secretary, was actually asked this yesterday. I want to say it was by the Associated Press reporter, Brian Anderson, who asked this. And uh, she seemed to indicate from what I recall that, I mean, I was kind of I had it on in the background, so I was not monitoring it as I as closely as I should have. But uh, if I recall, he uh, she had responded that uh, they're not aware of much spoilage at this point now. I don't know how you track that stuff. And look, the rollout, I recognize there's going to be problems. This is a massive logistical uh, operation, right? And uh, there are very few states that are getting it right. But I think the criticisms from the beginning in the way this was rolled out in North Carolina are, are kind of bearing out now. They they keep trying to, um, it's sort of like square peg round hole kind of a deal where they're trying to force things uh, to happen based on criteria that they prefer. The big one is, you know, they want to distribute this in some sort of a, you know, racially equitable manner. And And I keep coming back to this. I've been saying it from the beginning. You know, either this is serious or it's not. Either we're practicing battlefield medicine or we're not. Get the shots out the door to the people that need them the most. And those would be the at-risk populations. If you have a very, very, very low chance of contracting and dying from COVID-19, you probably shouldn't be first or second or third in line. You know, the people who are most likely to get it and die they should be first in line. Unless, of course, the point is not to save as many lives as possible. The uh, the, the whole racial equity side was that answer, uh, not yesterday's press conference, but the one earlier this week, where it she started to stumble through about, well, the you know average life expectancy and how that needs to play in there, and it's, mm-hmm. and it's lower for uh, people in the minority community. And I'm sitting there going... This is a word salad. I don't understand what you're saying. This is an argument that a lot of folks on the left have been making that because uh, whites have a longer lifespan in America, they shouldn't get the shot as early as other non-white racial populations. 
because uh, the the quality of the years, and they have like formulas for, you know, you're a younger person, so your quality right. of life, those years you have remaining are going to be more valuable than if you are, you know, 85 and all this. And it, it, it you really see it, 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 you see the, the curtains open here into the, into the pathway to the kinds of things that conservatives were arguing about with Obamacare, the quote death panels, this opens that door, right? Because once you start, once you start uh, turning over these types of questions from an ethical perspective and then applying them uh, to government policy and prioritization of limited resources, that's how you get down that path. That's and it's a tr- that, that's a troubling conversation that uh, people I think are uh, hesitant to have in the open. But at least we're kind of getting a glimpse of it now. Well, and then what do you do? You come out uh, two days later, and then you readjust the priority list again because obviously your first list isn't working out. And um, I think at that point, it's fair to have critical conversations, mm-hmm. which is what uh, the uh, woke school uh, uh, editorial guy over there at <laughs> WRL was uh, saying uh, should not happen, and they should be essentially asking her how much more money she needs. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely absurd. You know, it's funny, though. I, uh, I had a conversation. I actually had uh, one of the WRAL reporters on uh, at the beginning of the week, Travis Fain. Yes. Um, and I know you listened to that interview. I did. Um, I, I find it fascinating because I like to understand where everybody's head is at and where people are coming from. And Travis and I had a very interesting conversation. There's, you know, it's one of those things in retrospect, there's a lot of different roads I want to go down, but you got to fit it into the time that you have. But the one thing that I kind of tacked on to the end is the continued way in which the governor has found since March to avoid most of the critical questions by essentially sticking to, I don't know, what did you say, about 10, 10 outlets, mostly major Roughly. TV and newspaper uh, reporters, maybe some public radio here and there. And, you know, RAL obviously is a beneficiary of that. They get a lot of questions. Yeah. At least and, one per, if they, if they're waiting on the line, usually they're about one question per briefing news and observer will pick one up as well. And then they'll kind of scatter the rest from around the state. Yeah. And, and, and the reason I, I thought that that was interesting, I want to ask him about it is I have to think because we've all sat in press conferences and there's people from all over and whether you like them or not, at the end of the day, you got to know that some of your colleagues are getting screwed, and that should just bug you. And the reason it should bug you is because if the roles were reversed, you would expect it to bug the people who are getting the questions. Yeah. And I was surprised that he dismissed that that was even really a thing. <laughs> yeah, he said he doesn't he doesn't spend much time <sighs> thinking about it, which I I mean, I don't I don't want to assume people's motives or whether or not they're being honest, but I find that very, very difficult to believe because when I was a reporter, you can probably confirm this for your own experience as well, which is reporters are very, very attuned to how reporters get treated, very attuned to it. So this idea that, oh, I just haven't spent that much time thinking about it. I'm not so sure that's the case. And if it is the case, maybe there's a blind spot there that you might want to examine because uh, the fact that you're relying on an, an administration that, again, still can't figure out how to do in-person briefings, right? That's the best interpretation, that they they can't figure out how to do these safely, but they're going to dictate for everybody else around the state how to reopen safely. I'm not buying that. I think that there is a reason why they're doing it like this, and the reason is obviously to limit the kinds of challenging questions that might be uh, thrown at them from outlets that are not trying to protect 
the 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 governor. Um, and look, I understand that that's going to chap some reporters when they hear me say that. I get that. Um, but hopefully, I don't know, maybe approach Governor Cooper as if you were a Republican. Challenge him and frame your questions the same way you would if it were Pat McCrory. That's all. And this idea, Fain says at the end that, oh, I think the North State Journal gets some questions. They get questions at Cohen's briefing. They never get questions of the governor. Neither does the Carolina Journal. They never get questions at the governor's briefings. So, you know, and, and by the way, how would he know that? How would he know that if he doesn't really pay it much attention, then how would he know that North State Journal gets a couple of questions every now and again? Well, he threw a little he threw a little something out there. And by the way, I talked to somebody from the North State Journal. They're they're of the opinion they haven't had a question since March. I think they would know. Yeah, Yeah, they're literally keeping track of it. Yeah, they literally track it. (laughs) And, And tweet about it. So it's not, you know, anyone who's on the end of the hashtag NC poll sees that when mm-hmm. they tweet about it because other people tweet about it. And, and you know, he, he did throw a little slide out in arguing that there were people of political persuasion who have now moved over onto the journalistic side and how there's, there's bias present there, which is fine <laughs> to point out unless you literally work for one of the most unabashedly liberal operators in media, mm-hmm. right? Everybody, look, and that's fine. That's fine. You, the, you know, if you're the top dog over capital broadcasting, um, the, we know we know politically where his where affiliation lies. That doesn't necessarily mean that it transitions over to the news side of things. Yeah, and, uh, but we I, I I know I know we saw some there was some there were some stories out earlier this year of yeah. some emails that were inadvertently sent that makes you think that. But uh, ultimately, that's a big charge to throw out when. You consider some of the stuff that we've seen with WRAL. Yeah. The, so Goodman, right? Jim Goodman, right? They, yeah. they they pump money into left-wing organizations and causes, and they have for a very long time. They're, that is undeniable. They hired a person to write editorials. This person worked for two previous Democratic governors as their PR guy. So don't tell me that there's not some sort of a political agenda that is driving that uh, that uh, company, right? Now, that culture, now, the people in the newsroom will say, well, where are the newsroom? We're separate. The culture begins at the top. This is the same argument, by the way, that they would make regarding Donald Trump. So you can't tell me that the culture of the corporation and the business and the people that work there that they don't understand. It's not, it, it, they don't send out a memo that says, remember everybody, make sure you approach this from a liberal bias standpoint. They, they don't have to say that. They, they, it, just, it just comes with the culture. And if you start turning in stories or pitching stories that don't, uh, that don't meet with your editor's approval, they don't get covered. And you eventually realize, you clue in, okay, if I wanna get airtime, if I want this story, I'm gonna have to do a certain kind of a story. And yeah. it, people people make these decisions, and a lot of this is subconscious, unconscious, and uh, some of it is just, look, I became a reporter to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Uh, that is a bias, right? Everyone has it. So it's just a matter of trying to pack a newsroom with as many people of a different philosophy so you get more of those competing ideas in the morning meetings when you're determining uh, what kind of coverage and what stories get covered? Because that's the other thing is it's not so much in the stories that get covered and how they're covered. It's the stories that never get covered. And yeah. I, I thought you made good points in, in bringing him you know, to this this argument that, look, you're you're demanding accountability and apologies from Republicans for what happened at the Capitol. But where was this demand for accountability among for, from Democrats for the last four years? 
And when you don't cover that stuff and then you only cover this and you demand, you know, this this culpability be thrown down on all Trump supporters uh, or all uh, Republican politicians, people on the right see that. And that does not help short circuit this cycle of escalation. One other thing here, we've got a couple minutes left. Uh, So the North Carolina Bar Owners Association, um, there was an understanding out there that uh, when it came to the ABC permitting, um, they would essentially have a 60-day grace period from the time they were allowed to reopen, all right, so to to not pay their fees. They would have 60 days deferred and then 60 days of hopefully doing enough business to get caught up. Well, lo and behold, on uh, last week, 120 private bars in North Carolina had their permits just canceled. The argument was that when the governor threw that little bone uh, that they could open at 30 percent of outdoor occupancy for those who could. Some of them don't have that space, so they simply haven't opened. Mm -hmm. And many have looked at that number and said, we can't open. Um, They started the clock October 2nd. So, you know, here yet again, <laughs> I swear, I think I Governor on, Cooper right? got beat up in a bar by a gym rat. It, I swear there's no other explanation for some of these rules. Like there's got to be some sort of a personal history here with bars and gyms. I don't get it. I, I, I don't know what it is. And I'm just I'm sitting here and I'm thinking nobody in the food chain saw this, <laughs> saw that this was happening. And it's like. Because now, now, what do you do with them? At the very least, they might be able to make good when they are able to open. We don't know when that will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know if that will be. Um, we've seen a, a, a series of stories, including uh, uh, Zach Medford, mm-hmm. who runs uh, – he's head of the Tavern Association, which is a different group. But, but they've been very vocal about this. He announced that he's he has uh, – one of his big bars called Coglins isn't coming back. Right. That was a very popular bar in Raleigh, and he's not alone. There's there's a lot of folks with this. And I guess what I just fundamentally don't understand is how there is – this is an easy thing to look at on the bureaucratic side and go, all right, we're going to just start the clock here on the second. That doesn't make much sense. Let's ask some questions. And so I have to wonder, you know, how much is he conversing with various other folks uh, within the public sector entities around the state of North Carolina, because this is a super unforced air right here. Yeah, well, maybe somebody get will get to ask him that question at one of his... <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm sorry. I yeah. couldn't even finish the sentence. Um, That's adorable. Right. Yeah, well, and, and this is this is uh, a huge problem that uh, that bar owners, they, they can't... I'm surprised that some of them are even able to afford uh, to re-up their permits. I'm guessing what maybe the drive through cocktails measure i guess that's that's just been a windfall for these bars i like it's just absurd it's really absurd look i worked in bars and restaurants for almost a decade years and years ago and i can tell you that drive-through cocktails is not a sustainable model that's not going to save a bar's life nobody says oh you know what i really need a martini from this bar and so you know i know i can't go and get it at the bar but i'll just drive through and pick one up and drive it home because they just make the best martini there and then by the time you get home of course the the drink has started to you know it's slow descent uh, to spoilage because all bar drinks all mixed drinks have a shelf life that's only a few minutes you got to drink them uh, uh, you know, within a few minutes. And so I don't see this as being some sort of a, a savior act that was uh, uh, given to the uh, the bars. But, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe the governor knows more about running bars than I do. It's possible. Yeah. Uh, com, the uh, website, the podcast, of course, iHeartRadio. 
uh, Apple, basically all the uh, all the main stuff. Um, we yeah, need for deep now. diving today real quick. Yeah. <laughs> for now, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, uh, we'll be talking a little bit today about the uh, the big tech stuff with uh, Parler, and there was, uh, you know, now they're suing Amazon for deplatforming mm-hmm. them uh, off of the Internet, and uh, talked to an interesting fellow from the R Street Institute who is all on board with what happened to Parler. I'm not so sure. It's just interesting, the, the different standards, and you talked about this actually with Travis Fain uh, earlier this week, the consistency, the, the, you know, the consistent application of standards. And if one side is unwilling to do it, uh, then it gets very difficult for the other side to maintain that line. Yeah. Uh, Well, I look forward to it, Pete, and I look forward to chatting next week, sir. Thanks for the time. Have a great weekend, Casey. Appreciate it. All right.